Hi, everybody. Welcome to Coach's Corner. You're going to love this conversation I have with Dr. Alexandra Solomon today about relationships and sex and sexuality. It's such a juicy conversation, and she offers just so much really, really valuable insight. I think you're just going to love her. I'll tell you more about her in a moment. Before we dive in, speaking of relationships, I'm sure you've heard me talking about the Be the Queen program. Steph and I are teaching our last live Be the Queen program for a while since we're going to have a baby and I'm going to be taking some time off. I wanted to fit in one last class before it turns into just an evergreen program that we aren't teaching live for at least a year. So if you want to join us and you're a woman who really wants to call in your man and have epic love, soul match kind of love. There's many soulmates, people that come in to teach us different lessons, but our soul match is that person that's that conscious relationship, sacred union going the distance with. So if you're ready, and if you've at all been inspired by my story or our story, I think you're just going to absolutely love the program. So many incredible women of all ages, of all relationship backgrounds and backgrounds in general, register and enroll for this course. It's such a diverse group of women. It's really a beautiful program. And like I said, it's the last time we're teaching it live. And I think it'll be extra powerful because this little baby girl that's grown inside me, she's Wow, she's already pretty powerful. And I have noticed that my own intuition and teaching has gone up since being pregnant, especially now that I'm not feeling nauseous 24-7. So if you want to join us, go to christinehassler.com slash be the queen and apply. There's no button there to register or anything. You have to go through the application process. And why we do this is because Calling in love is a very thoughtful, intentional process, and we don't want you to make just quick decisions either way. We want you to go through the process of application because the questions will bring stuff up, and we also want to make sure it's a highly curated group of like-minded women who are committed together to have a different kind of view of themselves, men, and relationships in general. So again, go to christinehauser.com slash be the queen. And don't let the application process scare you. There's nothing we're like looking for. We don't reject people or anything like that. It's more just really supporting you and your intention and helping you really get clear about what you truly desire. So again, christinehasler.com slash be the queen. So let me tell you a little bit about Alexandra. Dr. Alexandra Solomon is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University, my alma mater, a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern, and the author of Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want, and her other book, Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, which has been featured on the Today Show. She's an international speaker and teacher whose works has been featured on six continents. She also has a strong, positive voice on Instagram where she has lots of followers and provides really amazing relational tips and guidance in general. You can learn more about her at dralexandersolomon.com. But before we dive in, I'm so excited to share with you that Organifi, one of our sponsors for the show, is launching one of my favorites. Well, they're relaunching one of my favorites just in time for the holidays, the gold chocolate. It's so good. It's the best hot chocolate drink you will ever have. So they're going to be relaunching it on October 19th and 20th. And you can go to Organifi.com slash over it and enter over it and order it before they launch to the public on 1021. 
right? So you can get special 20% off on the 19th and 20th. And it's one of those products that's so good. It may go out of stock. So if you want to try it, order on the 19th and 20th. If you're listening to the show after that date, no problem. Go to Organifi.com slash over it, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it. So again, it's limited time. It's a soothing blend of Ayurvedic herbs, medicinal mushrooms, and organic cacao. It's a holistic alternative to hot chocolate, which calms your nervous system, enhances your immune response, and supports deeper rest with a nourishing blend of self-care. And oh my goodness, gold chocolate is so good. It's one of my favorite. Mix it with almond or coconut milk, unsweetened almond or coconut milk, and it's just, it's just delicious. I can't wait until mine arrives. So again, everybody go to Organifi.com slash over it and use the code over it for 20% off. And now on to our conversation. Alexandra, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Christine, for having me on. And we were chatting a bit that we have something in common, which is Northwestern, which was my undergrad alma mater and where you our professor now. And I'm so bummed that I graduated before you teach a class <laughs> called Marriage 101. Who would have thought a college class you teach Marriage 101? What what do you students learn in that class? And are a lot of students <laughs> excited to take it? You know, I wish the whole like who would have thought thing was something we only experienced in the beginning. But unfortunately, this this class has not. I think there there have been a number of universities that have reached out to me over the years to kind of check out our syllabus and see what they could create on their campuses. But this course remains pretty unique in that it is a class that sits really comfortably at the intersection of didactic and experiential learning. So students are, you know, I'm teaching research, I'm teaching clinical tools, they're reading, you know, materials that are relationship science-based materials, um, and then they're also just working on themselves individually and in small groups. So we do traditional lectures and they write traditional papers, but they also are keeping a um, relational self-awareness-based journal and they're meeting in small groups and having different kinds of conversations about everything. You know, a lot of it is understanding the families that they grew up in. So I have Mm -hmm. a very strong family of origin, psychodynamic family systems lens. So they're really understanding their early experiences and how those shape their expectations of love, sex, and intimacy. It's a blast. And I am so grateful that this year will be our 22nd year teaching it. Oh my gosh. And I just cannot believe that we don't teach this everywhere. You know, we do. I, mm-hmm. I Let me tell you how many times I use the Pythagorean theory or whatever that thing <laughs> is called. I can't even pronounce it. Uh, you know, or in Texas growing up, we had to take a year of Texas history. So We took a year of world history and then a full year of U.S. history and then a full year of Texas history. It's like (gasps) world history and Texas history got the same amount. And – but I never learned anything about my emotions or as you call it, relational self-awareness or any of that because I love that you're teaching this. And everybody that listens to the show knows that I have a very heavy family of origin slant. Mm. Like anytime anyone calls in, it's like, okay, tell me about your mom. (laughs) Tell me about your dad. What was your home life? Like did you feel safe? And it all comes back to that. And here's a question for you. So do you think it's possible for us to really heal, transform, have the relationships and lives we want without looking back at our family of origin and unpacking that? Oh, I mean, I love that question. And my answer is a really clear, resounding no. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not, you know, maybe there's a little baby asterisk next to it, which is that we don't have to look back and shred the people who raise us. I am like very anti-throwing our caregivers under the bus, especially because I am the mom of two adolescents and I don't want to be thrown under the bus because I know that I have, you know, parented to the level of my awareness and the degree of my own healing every step of the way. But my goodness, we've got to understand what those early, what I, I call it the love classroom. I'm sure you have terms that you use as well, like just sort of, you know, when we're little, we're just absorbing all of it. We have no psychological boundaries. We're just taking in all of who we need to be. And we're observing how the big people talk to each other and, you know, behave towards each other. So we don't have to do it in a, you know, way that feels disloyal or cruel, but we sure need to understand it. Do you agree? A a thousand percent. A thousand percent. I, I truly believe that I always make the joke that people have asked me in the past what my type is when it comes to dating. I'm married now, but, and I say, well, line up every man I've dated or been engaged to or been married to. And I, I've had, let's see, three, three engagements and I'm on my second marriage. So one, one failed engagement, one divorce, Mm -hmm. and now I'm with the love of my life. Uh But I, I line them up and there's not a type. It's not like tall, dark, and handsome or athletic build. It's Whatever issue I was working through at the time, like, oh, that was my mom's stuff. Oh, that was my dad's stuff. Oh, that was my 14-year-old who never – boys didn't like her stuff. That was my insecurity. That was Hmm. – I can look at every single one and go, oh, that's what I was working out. And I believe that family of origin doesn't just impact relationships. It impacts everything. And that's why when I became a coach, I had to go back and get training in psychology because mm-hmm. I was like, I can only take people so far. Goal setting and visioning and sure. manifesting only goes so far. But if you never felt safe as a child, good luck feeling mm-hmm. like you can pursue anything as an adult. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I well, I love I love the way that you you know would give your relationship history through the lens of who you were, the parts of you that you were attempting to master, heal, integrate, and understand. Because that's, I mean, that really is where the rubber hits the road, right? Like when I'm sitting with a couple, you know, we can only, our couples therapy can only kind of progress as quickly as people are willing to kind of hold up a mirror, right? And you know that when you're in an intimate partnership, it is so easy to point the finger, right? It's so easy to look at if my partner would just, and, you know, I had to end this relationship because they wouldn't or they couldn't. And it's so much more courageous, more intimacy promoting to be willing to say, okay, and what does that activate in me? Like, what is that part of me that gets so stirred up when you, you know, say it this way instead of this way. So it's, 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 it's a more difficult way to be. It's the more humble way to be. And it doesn't mean that we let our partners off the hook. I think we can still, you know, sort of say like, when you do this, I feel this way, but we have to leave ourselves in the equation. right? Absolutely. And that was a big lesson for my first marriage. I mean, I got married at 28. I didn't really know much. I just really started on the path of personal development. And one of the main reasons it didn't work, well, first I could have used your class in college. That probably would have helped a lot. Um, and I can't believe it was there for a year that I was there and I didn't know about right. it. I've only had a time machine. But anyway, I I made the mistake of looking at what my partner needed to fix, looking at what I thought yeah. he needed to heal, looking at what felt like it was his issues. And I wasn't pointing the finger enough at myself. I was doing my own personal development work, but I wasn't looking at how I was playing into his patterns. And that's been a big thing in our marriage now is that 
one of the agreements we have is we're willing to call each other forward, but not without looking at ourselves first. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, I can imagine sort of the young 28 year old Christine who likely thought that it, I mean, you know, I think there's something as you were describing that pattern in your first marriage, I was thinking about how much it fits with how you were socialized as a woman, very likely, right? That it felt loving to be pointing out to him his growing edges and what he needed to work on. I think that so often we as women are taught to exit our own lane in order to, like under the auspices of its caregiving. Like right. this is how you love somebody is you just, you're just cheerleading for them while also pointing all their stuff out to them. Like it's very complicated. I think there are lots of you know, for all the difficulties, I think, you know, I think that men oftentimes bring in their own, obviously, set of challenges into couples therapy or coaching work. But I think that is very often the work that I'm doing with women is, is just inviting them to just focus on themselves because it's so easy. We are so wired and taught to kind of like vibe or, or orient ourselves off of his mood, his challenge, mm-hmm. his needs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think even if we look at sitcoms and some TV, there's a lot of emasculating. There's a lot of like, oh, you stupid man, like you just don't get it type of things as well. And so I think that's one thing I've learned, especially as a heterosexual woman in a, you know, male-female relationship is those, that conditioning of being the caretaker, sort of losing myself and becoming more invested in how he is, what he's doing, his work, not really looking at, okay, what's my role and how is this impacting me? But then also going into the he's doing it wrong and trying yep. to get him to change by emasculating him, which works every time. I mean, that's oh, just and so they effective. Love it. <laughs> they love it. Yeah. Oh it really God. opens them up. They're, they're like, let's go to therapy now and talk about that's my feelings because right. you're making me feel – It also makes the sex that much better. Oh, oh right? so much, yeah, because we're super oh feminine in those, in those roles. So, yeah, we just kind of fall into these patterns and we need, as you call it, relational awareness. And I should probably back up and ask you – what do you define as relational self-awareness? Because I've heard of self-awareness, but relational self-awareness adds a whole nother level. Yeah. This was, you know, this has sort of become, it's sort of the hub of all of the work that I do. And in part, I created it out of necessity. I mean, certainly my own necessity of my own therapeutic work. And I've been married to the very same Todd Solomon for over 23 years. And we've had maybe five to seven marriages within this marriage. And, you know, I have had to... I think, you know, I come in with a double whammy of being a, a woman and being, you know, a, a therapist, we're <laughs> quote unquote relationship expert woman, like just, you know, similar to like, just like you in terms yeah. of like, then I think there are times when it can amplify my sense that my way is the quote unquote right way. And so a lot of my healing within our marriage has been being willing to look at what, what Todd is showing me, you know, what my reactions to Todd are showing me about myself. But then also relational self-awareness comes from the fact that I stand in front of a lecture hall of a hundred students who have radically different stories, radically different templates for relationship, radically different expectations and beliefs. And so I can't, I can't teach about relationships from a top-down kind of a way. So I've had to locate the class, you know, within each individual student. So that it's a, it's a journey of understanding the self, the self and the mm-hmm. context of relationship. And so that's where this idea of relational self-awareness comes from. It's this ongoing, curious and compassionate relationship that we have with ourselves that becomes the foundation for a healthy, intimate partnership. Mm, I love that. I'm curious because you've kind of seen really three generations, the very end of Gen X, mm-hmm. a lot of millennials, and now you're having Gen Y come through. How has their 
expectations, opinions, viewpoints on relationship and marriage really changed through the past two decades? Oh, I love that question. You know, it's a little bit of chicken and egg because I, I, so I took over leadership of the class about a decade ago. I was an assistant and took over leadership maybe a decade ago. And so I've also kind of reworked and revisited the curriculum along the years in order to meet the changes among the students mm. as well. So it's been like a, it's been a, you know, back and forth kind of like a recursive process, but 20, I would say 20 years ago, we would have a significant number of students who were engaged or very nearly engaged. Um, and that is far, far, far more the exception yeah. than the rule today, um, which fits with the sociological data, right? That the, the age of entry into marriage 20 years ago was much closer to 24, 25, and now it's much closer to 28, 30. And the rate of marriage has just gone down pretty precipitously over the last 20 years. So there are just many, many fewer students who envision marriage for themselves and certainly uh, many fewer students who envision marriage is happening anytime soon. But what's exciting is that um, alongside that, what I've seen is this, you know, these, my students today have been raised by a really different generation of parents. So they come in, many of them have been, have had really lovely sex education talks with their parents. Many of them mm. haven't, but some of them have had conversations about pleasure, about sexual communication. That's great. I, um, a lot of them, you know, as just sort of like a matter of course, will ask partners very early on in relationships what their love languages are. So it's really cool wow. to see how the language of attachment styles, the language of love languages has really um, kind of like been exported. I think, you know, these are students who've been raised on technology. So there's just so much information available. Like, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to go to a self-help book, right? You can go to my Instagram feed or any mm -hmm. number of, you know, really wonderful like Instagram feeds and podcasts and sort of have this relationship language much more at your fingertips, much more accessible. So I think there's a process of like integration, like learning how to like walk the talk, but they've got way more talk than students had 20 years ago, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah. And are students still wanting marriage? Are they wanting to change it? Do they see the institution as antiquated? They are. So, you know, this is a bit of a Northwestern specific yeah. um, variable perhaps, but there's a lot of, um, social justice consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, so, which is wonderful for me because my students are forever pointing out sort of what's at the, uh, you know, what's beyond my current awareness, right? My mm -hmm. language, when my language is not as inclusive as it um, can be and needs to be. And so they, very often, if they're deconstructing the institution of marriage, they're deconstructing it from a, from a position of institutional systemic racism, um, homophobia, heterosexism, transphobia. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at the ways in which that institution, like all institutions has been permeated by these, by systemic oppression. So they're questioning whether or not they want to participate in an institution that has done harm. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're, sometimes they're questioning it around their own exploration of questioning monogamy as sort of another kind of institution, right? right? Like, is that for me? And why is that for me? So I'm, you know, my, my office hours are pretty unique. So my, my students yeah. come to office hours with all kinds of fascinating, you know, relationship questions that are oftentimes about open relationships. Um, that sometimes I think that my, sometimes my students are creating open relationships because they are solutions to current problems that mm. are about, you know, being long distance, having lots of career ambitions that are going to take 
um, themselves and the people they love to pretty different geographies. You know, yeah. sometimes the open relationship arrangement may be more of a reflection of a need than an, than an identity per se, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but still where, you know, I get to be with them in those conversations about the role and value of monogamy versus, you know, alternatives to monogamy and how do you place your boundaries. And I'm just so here for wherever students land or end up with that. I'm mm -hmm. so here for the conversation, right? Because in having the conversation, students are like feeling their way into what's, what works for them and why and, and what they're going to claim, you know, like with intention rather than just like reactive, you know, reactively because yeah. that's what Everybody the does. Or, yeah. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that's so great because in our, you know, late teens, early twenties and twenties, like I, I tell people do not really, please don't get married before you're 30 or even 35. Mm. Like, just, just wait, especially now, because I think that there's so, the world is so much bigger. I mean, it's not geographically, but there's just so many more possibilities that are at our fingertips. And I think that the time of exploration is then. Like that's really the time to explore. What does an open relationship look like? What does monogamy look like? What is, what does anything look like? What am I curious about? Because I, what I have found with a lot, and I'm curious if you find that with couples, with couples that get married very young in their, around in their forties, that's when one or both feel like they missed out on something. And they want to go and explore. They want things. They want to spice things up, or they want to experiment with an open relationship because they feel like they never got that. So, is do you think that's a symptom of a deeper issue, or do you think humans really need a time relationally and sexually to explore and be free and live outside of the expectations and norms? Yeah, I you know I think that I just really avoid being particularly prescriptive because I don't, mm. you know, I, it just doesn't really, it doesn't land for me. I certainly want, you know, I spend a lot of time in the course and then in all of the, you know, the books I write and Instagram posts and blogs and workshops talking about really, really good endings because I mm. do think whether somebody, you know, whether somebody sets out to forestall marriage until age 30 or 35, or if life just works out that way, I, you know, people are pretty likely to live more than one love story. So I yes. want people to know how to leave people better than they found them, you know, yeah, and how to that. integrate loss and how to take lessons away and how to, but I, um, and maybe, you know, I mean, my lens is certainly shaped by the fact that I have been, you know, making yeah. out with the same dude for over 30 years. You I know what I mean? That. So like there's, so we've had, you know, and I think that I can just feel the the ways in which we are different with each other and to each other and have grown inside of this relationship. So I don't, I just try to avoid the, the betters and the worses, yeah. but I certainly do think that if you're, you know, when people partner up young as Todd and I did, it just means there's that much more responsibility to grow together, yes. to attend, att you know, to like sort of, you know, and I, I mean, I love that we get to like, whatever, go to university of Michigan, you know, mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. walk around the campus and be like, remember this, remember oh, this. You know, I so love he's, that. That history he has so is much of my history inside yeah. of him and I, you know, and likewise. So there's a, there's a loveliness of that, but you're right that it does mean then that when itchiness, you know, arrives, yeah. when sexual boredom arrives, when, um, changes, you know, we're about to, we already launched, we launched our oldest son a couple of months ago and our daughter's a junior. So all of this is like a massive reworking. And I certainly, it makes sense. You know, we have a, a bimodal distribution of the 
rate of divorce, right? Like there's a, a bump in the divorce rate around like the four-ish year mm-hmm. mark and then another bump around the 20-ish year mark. And that 20-ish year mark tends to be as couples are launching it. I surely mm-hmm. understand how fragile a marriage can become at that point because the contract of like, <laughs> you better not go anywhere because mm-hmm. these kids are a handful and I can't do it on my own. That contract ends. Okay. So now what is our contract? Like, why yeah. are we together? What are we doing? So I certainly have nothing but compassion for marriages that don't survive this transition. I, you know, I hope that Todd and I do, and we're working to ensure that we do, but it is, it's not, it's not effortless by any Mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination. Mm. Well, you said something that I so resonate with, which you said a couple of things. You've had five or six different marriages and that you've made this commitment to grow together because what I see as the deeper issue when couples get super itchy is that they they haven't really grown together. They're they're not different people, right? They're not becoming enticing and alluring to each other because they've just kind of gotten in a rut. And what what I have found is that couples that can grow individually and have their own interests and passions and really work on the relationship and grow together. And I definitely want to talk about the sex piece in that. Then it's like, oh, wait a second. I don't necessarily need another person because I've got a new person right in front of me. Yes. Right. 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 Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. That and that. You know, you had named a moment ago this idea of like, what am I missing out on? And that is just. I mean, it's so real. It's such a real feeling. And I think that's part of. I experience it again and again. Like whatever we choose in our life means that we're not choosing something else, right? right? Every choice involves an attendant grief. Always. 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 And so. I think what, and it's scary. It's so scary to choose because to choose this person means I'm not choosing all these other people. And even if, and even in an open relationship, right? I mean, I think, I suppose there are some people who have like complete relationship anarchy. So there is no, you know, there, there, whatever, there, there aren't really a lot of kind of boundaries, limitations, but even within consensually non-monogamous or disclosed non-monogamous couples, there are agreements and parameters, you know? Um, so it's not, but, but that's part of like the, I don't know, like existential pain of being human is like, oh, I can't live, I can't live every single life, at least not in this life, you know? And that's just, I don't, that's, that is just to be, my sense is that is just to be like kind of carried rather than resolved, you know? I mean, I feel, I feel it around geography, like, oh, living here means I'm not living there, right? (laughs) Doing this means I'm not doing that. It's just, that's just, that's just real and, and to some degree, just not fixable, right? Just, yeah. Yeah. You reminded me, my husband and I had a conversation this morning. We're expecting our first child in March (gasps) and yeah, it's a a whole new transition. And we were just both sad and we had some guilt about being sad. And we, we have an agreement that we just, you know, really speak openly and honestly. And what came up for both of us was grief. Like as excited as we are, Mm -hmm. we're also both individually grieving different things. You know, he's grieving freedom in a lot of ways, but he also knows like it's a certain construct of freedom. I'm, I'm grieving, you know, phase of my life, my body being different, like all different Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And it's like, wow, we can be really excited and super grateful and feel super blessed and we can really be aware of our grief in this because by saying yes to having a child and stepping into parenthood, we're, we're saying no to other things. And we made that conscious choice and there's some things we're giving up. And I love that you 
are presencing this because that whole like you can have it all kind of thing. It's like, okay, sure. Depends on what you describe as have it all. But yeah. the, the, the nature of making choices is if I'm eating vanilla ice cream, I'm not eating chocolate. You know, I've made it, made a choice. And I think in marriages, sometimes we're afraid to talk about what we may be grieving or what we may miss because we're so afraid our partner's going to take it personally. And so we keep a lot of that inside. Yes, that's right. That's right. And the stuff that feels too dangerous to name or too shameful to name, it doesn't go away, right? It doesn't, it, it doesn't go away and it tends to kind of, in the worst of scenarios, kind of take on a life of its own because we start to, we start, you know, and I love, I mean, just for you to name this on your show that, you know, as you, as the two of you prepare for this baby, it, there's a grieving of, right. That just being a little, you know, just being a little too some, like that's, yeah. that is a, it, it is a grief and it doesn't, it doesn't take anything. And it's not personal to this baby. You haven't no. even met this little baby yet. <laughs> you know, it's not personal. It just is. It just is. And I think that that's, yeah, the ability to sort of not take these things personally is hard. And it's so important because, and it's so important also that the two of you can say it to each other because mm-hmm. then it doesn't become shameful and it doesn't mean, I think so often when there's grief, what we do is we say, uh-oh, that must mean I've made the wrong choice. And we can start right. to really spiral and like scare the shit out of ourselves, you know? Right. So. Or if he's grieving his freedom, that means he doesn't want to be with me. He wants to go and, you know, be free right. and be a bachelor again. And it, right. it, you know, that's one of the things I'm really mindful of in, in my relationship, well, just in life in general is there's what's happening and then there's what I make it mean. Mm-hmm. And what I make it mean is going to impact how I feel about it more than actually what's happening. And that's been so key in terms of relational self-awareness for me because Mm. I love that I have such honesty with my husband, especially for a masculine man to come to me with his feelings and be able to articulate them like that. If I go into fear, if I go into, well, what does that mean about me? And I'm pregnant. How is this affecting me? And like, you know, if I go into my fear and shame, then that's just going to shut him down and that's going to affect our intimacy. And that was one of the things I learned from my first marriage is that, you know, to really invite that vulnerability, I have to be careful not to attack or shame if, if I, you yep. know, when I, because I'm scared. Yep. 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 Right. When we get the thing, when we get the thing that we say we want, can we just like breathe into yes. it and contain it? And not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, point. I just want to like put a big old spotlight on about his, about about the meaning that you make out of his feeling and not taking it personally. And I was talking about like how I could shame him or shut him down. Yeah. Oh, I know what it was. It was that I imagine it's helpful also, um, you know, when he says there's a piece of me that blah, blah, blah. And there's another piece of me. Like when we talk about ourselves and like that language of like a part of me, a piece of me, you know, like that, that's that, that within us, right. Like as Walt Whitman said, like we contain multitudes, like just trusting that we contain multitudes. And there's a part of me that feels like this. And there's another part of me that feels like this. That's really freeing because we don't, we don't have to foreclose on, you know, just one truth or just one reality. We're, you know, especially around this, you know, the transition that you all are, are about to go through of bringing a baby in, the transition that Todd and I are going through of mm-hmm. launching these babies. You know, we have to be able to hold on to multiplicity, like that there are lots of things that are true. I love, I, I'm so proud of, of what our son is, you know, doing off at school mm-hmm. and I miss him horribly. Mm-hmm. I love, there's a little bit more space for, 
Todd, and I'm a little scared, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do? What if we get bored? What if, what if, what if? So all of those things are real and none, no one truth is the entire sum total of it. And it's so helpful when you can talk about that with your partner versus having to just think about it in your head and mm-hmm. to have agreements of like, okay, we can talk about the what ifs and we can talk about the fears and it doesn't mean one of us is leaving. It doesn't mean we don't want to be with each other. It just means that this is a safe place to to talk about it. And that's been key for me in this relationship. Yes. But it's hard. I was thinking about, you know, it's been what's been hard for us in these conversations lately is that Todd doesn't he we're not having the same experience. Mm. He is what he describes to me is that he's ready for like lots and lots of togetherness. Like he doesn't get <laughs> he would just he would do he would I need more space and more alone time than he does. Like he is just mm. like kind of like are you ready now? Want to hang out now? What do you want to do now? And it's so love like that's so beautiful. It's such a cool mm. quality about him and I need to like not feel guilty that I'm different yep. and give myself permission to step away. And I need to remind him it's not that it's not anything offensive about him. It's just for whatever reason where I am right now, I just need quite a bit of alone time and quite a bit of space. Mm. Has it always been like that in your dynamic or is it has been something that has evolved over time as you've gone through different mm-hmm. seasons in your life? Different seasons. He says yeah. like He'll be like, you know, in this particular decade, I liked you more than you like me. And in this decade, <laughs> you like me more than I like you. So <laughs> I think it kind of adds to the flows. <laughs> I love that. Well, I want to talk a little bit about sexual boredom and some of the ways. Well, first, if we're feeling, I don't know, disconnected or not satisfied or have concerns about our sex life and relationship, that can be a touchy subject to bring up with a partner. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for how we can start approaching that conversation? Yeah, I think this is really, um, this is really important and troubling. And you know, we were, we were talking before about the sort of absence of relationship education that we yeah. get when we're younger, and there certainly is a horrifying absence of really high quality sex education that most of us got when we were younger. You know, like maybe we learned like sort of some basic anatomy yeah. and some like basics, but we don't ever really learn about like sexual communication, and we certainly don't learn. Um, you know, sex is sort of like couch is like a public health matter, which it is, but it's also profoundly like emotional and relational. And I think what's, I think that my biggest like sort of tip would be to kind of change the frame. I think it's really helpful to think about a couple relationship having three sexualities, my sexuality, your sexuality, and our sexuality, because then we can start to entertain the possibility of taking things less personally. I think one of the things that makes sex hard to talk about is we're afraid of hurting each other's feelings. We're mm-hmm. afraid of offending people, um, which is lovely. Like I love that, you know, people are generally speaking, not sociopaths and like want to be thoughtful and empathic and say things in a way that's helpful and, and not harmful. But I think it's a different conversation when, when we come at it from the perspective of like, I have a sexuality and you have a sexuality. So if it's, if that's the sort of like like foundation or presupposition for this conversation, then of course I'm going to have to ask you for certain things or give you feedback because how the hell would you know? And like, you need to get to know my sexuality and I need to get mm-hmm. to know your sexuality. And by the way, they're both moving targets. They're both like sort of fickle and sensitive to stress and medication and energy mm-hmm. and context. So we have to just get to know each other's sexuality, our, our own and each other's sexualities, because I think that like that framing busts up this myth that good sex is wordless and it's organic and is not a work in progress. And 
this idea that if we have to talk about it or refine it, then something's wrong wrong. with one of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if, okay, so let's say that one person is feeling sexually dissatisfied or bored or whatever, but the other person is, is, is fine. And is like, I don't know what the issue is. Like I, I'm, I'm good. Like I, and, but somebody else is longing. There's a, there's a imbalance there. What, what does the person who's craving more do in that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more might be, you know, I really want the person, the the more person just, you know, to be clear about like to be self-reflective about the, what are they wanting more of? Um, you know, very often we get hung up on quantity issues, mm-hmm. right? We and, and so I want that person who wants more just to at least be self-reflective, like sort of, you know, the, the idea that like perhaps they're carrying around a notion that if we aren't having sex this many times a week, something's wrong with us. And I think that, um, I want people to have more interesting metrics than just frequency, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. to also have some qualitative metrics, like how are we feeling and what is the experience like? Um, and then it may also be that sort of wanting more might be like, is it wanting a bit more like variety? Are there some particular kinds of like behaviors or experiences that you're wanting? And if so, like the question really becomes like, how do you invite your partner in? So your partner is saying like, I'm fine as we are. So then the more partner needs to kind of not like drown in shame, right? Like, like well, then what's wrong with me that I want more? Am I an, am I a nympho? Am I crazy? Is something mm-hmm. wrong with me? Am I, am I a sex addict? God forbid, you know, just that the more, the more is in the best of scenarios, the more means that you get to possibly be the leader or the the inviter of a bit of novelty and play and creativity. So your job then is, or your invitation then is to figure out how do I entice my partner, right? How do I kind of invite them, like, like titrate, I want my partner to feel safe and I want them to feel like there's buy-in um, and I want, and I'm going to have to perhaps be a little bit of the leader here, you know? So that's, that's the way that I want it to go where the, where then the person who is the less partner feels, um, proud of themselves. Like when they mm. expand their own sexual horizon or stretch a bit, I want them to feel really proud of themselves that they showed up in this way because they love this partner so much. And I want the more partner to be like, damn, I love that you would trust me enough to kind of, you know, enter into this like space we haven't been in before. So that just, there's a lot of like respect for each of those positionalities because there are challenges in both. It's hard to be the more partner and it's also hard to be the less partner, right? To be the one who feels like they're constantly like the brake pedal or the one who like is afraid of being perceived as like prudish or flat or, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's just, I think each the person in each of those roles needs and deserves a lot of empathy and validation as we're inviting some change and some novelty and some experimentation. And everything gets to be an experiment, right? A mm-hmm. lot of experiments mm-hmm. go poorly, but if you're on the same page and it's sort of like, okay, so we're not going to be trying that one again. That was kind of a... <laughs> that was messy. Let's not try that again. But I'm curious, I'm curious your thoughts and how you... Well, I, I, I totally, I completely agree. I think that you know, what I see with couples, especially when it comes to sexuality, as the biggest thing that takes them off track is shame and blame. I feel ashamed, I blame you. I feel ashamed, I blame you. And that just prevents intimacy and and prevents people from really getting to 
you know, increased connection and, and what they both really want. I think that we all have so many hangups when it comes to sex. I think yes. anytime our partner says, you know, I want more, or I, it's not enough or I'm bored or whatever. And I want to get to the boredom. I'm sure there's some overlap there in terms of your advice, but um, I know a lot of couples that they both want more, but they're just kind of bored. But back to the shame piece, we just all have so much sexual shame. And anytime there's a conversation about it or we feel confronted or we feel like our partner, we're not giving our partner what they want, I just think it hits all of our shame stuff. So, you know, when I'm working with couples on this, I'll work with them together, but I also will work with them individually mm-hmm. because there's a conversation about their sex life and then there's a conversation about okay, body shame, past sexual experiences. Is there any trauma here that we're still dealing with to really get that shame so that they can actually hear each other? Because the conversations about sex can be so confronting and can hit people's, you know, deepest, darkest shame pieces that they really just can't hear each other. And all the defenses come up and mm-hmm. we're not turned on and open when we're defensive. At least I'm not. The last yep. thing I want is sex when I feel ashamed. So that's been a big piece, both in my own sexual experience, my own sexuality personally, and my sexuality with my husband. I mean, I've done a lot of work in Tantra and sexual somatic experiencing and pelvic floor work and just a lot Mm -hmm. of really going there because I was a super late bloomer. Um, Mm -hmm. I always felt like the prude. I never felt like I was good sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of judgments wrapped up into that. And that was something I really committed to working on after my divorce so that now in my marriage with my husband, when sexual conversations do come up, I'm able to stay pretty present in my body mm. and not time travel back to past experiences or abuse or any of those things. And I notice the difference because I can actually hear him without without shutting down and hear his requests and, mm-hmm. and kind of remind myself like, we actually are on the same team here. We both want better sex. Like we both yep. want more intimacy. Yep. Like this isn't an argument. We're we're not mm-hmm. like running for different positions here. Um, but I know that without doing that work around my own shame and my own inhibitions, it would be really hard for me to be present in some of those conversations. Absolutely. Well, you're, I mean, you're highlighting so many really important things. Like the first one is it's really important for for, for listeners to know that when we, when it feels like our partner's voice is like Charlie Brown's teacher, mm-hmm. like the want, 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 like that's when we need to pause. Like that's our body telling us that we are too flooded to be present. And I think that you are, you know, the other thing that you are, and so it's really important. It's important to not try and stay in conversations, you know, not push through flooding because that's yes. like, it's a, um, you know, what, what, what family therapists would call like an isomorph, like to, to stay in a conversation when you're not fully present is a parallel to staying in sexual experiences. We're not fully present. Mm. So in both those scenarios, we're just kind of showing ourselves again and again and again, that our presence doesn't matter, right? We're sort of like, you know, like in some ways, like abandoning ourselves and sort of saying that presence doesn't matter. So I, I love that you're highlighting that. And I love that you're highlighting that like, sexual, we, we have to be, and we get to be like forever students of sexuality. I think that's part of, you know, my second book is all about sexuality. I think it's part of why I wrote that book was it was, it was the book that I needed as well. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I really knew that I needed and deserved and wanted some time to understand sexuality more deeply. And so it was wonderful to be writing about it and learning about it and, and understanding more deeply my own journey and how I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to offer 
readers in terms of supporting their own journeys because I wasn't, I mean, my own, I was trained by some of the best of the best couples therapists and my training around human sexuality was like basically non-existent, yeah. right? So, um, so I think that that's like that, that whole reclamation of like, I get to learn about this and this is worthy. It's not silly or frou-frou mm -hmm. or accessory. Like this is my body and this is my relationship to pleasure, to aliveness. Mm. Um, and so it's such a, it's a powerful, it's not just something that we do. I think especially maybe for, I don't know, I feel like maybe especially for women who are partnered with men, I worry that they do this in order to, in order to be a better mm -hmm. lover. Right. Mm -hmm. And whenever it's like that sort of in order to now we're in the realm of performance and now we're in the realm of duty. And now we're like, you know, basically at risk of abandoning versus like this. No, I want to claim and create experiences that really are founded in my own connection to myself and my yeah. partner gets to be there with me. Yeah. But it, it also is that I'm coming from a place of just deep connection with myself and what I'm wanting to experience. That's such a different perspective. It's such a more empowering perspective. And I love, so the book you're referring to is Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create Relationships You Want. And I love this because I find there's either books about sexuality or there's books about relationship, mm -hmm. not bridging the two together. And when you were writing this book, what were some things that you found or discovered about sexuality that, that surprised you or really moved the needle for you? I mean, you mentioned one thing, like really connecting to your to your own pleasure and making it about you versus performance. But is there anything that stood out for you in terms of even what sexuality is or how how we relate to it? Mm, that's such a good question. I, you know, I, I organized the the book around these seven different like lenses through which we look at sexuality, and I did that because I really wanted to like honor that that for different ones of us our pain points or our growing edges lie in different arenas. And I, you know, I did this project, the Taking Sexy Back project was done in conjunction with my team of graduate and undergraduate students. And I'm so blessed that I get to do most things as part of a mm -hmm. team of smart, hardworking young people. And it was really cool as we were developing this book to kind of see which chapters landed for them based on their own cultural locations or prior experiences. And that was affirming um, th that we just, we, we have different journeys and different things that need mm. to be healed. And that's important, I think, for couples to remember, right? Because there's, I want, I also, um, want people who are, especially, you know, women, vulva body people to be able to have a lot of like empathy for the journey. If their partner is a penis bodied person or a man, mm -hmm. someone who's been socialized in the masculine, I think because we have such thin narratives about men and sex, right? Like our sort of like cultural narrative is that men always want it right? and they're, you know, they only want one thing and it's just a, what, you know, and it's just, and it's so not that. And when it is that, I mean, it, first of all, it, is unfair to the complexities of men. It creates a condition that when a man is struggling with his own sexual desire or his own, like anything that has to do with his own, like quote unquote performance, like what's happening with his penis, it just creates the conditions to make a yep. painful situation even that much more yep. painful. Again. So it's, you know, I think that was the biggest thing was just this recognition of how profoundly gendered all the stuff about sex is. For, for sure. I, I mean, that's, I, I, in, t in coaching men and working with couples, um, it has opened my eyes so much to the insecurity that men feel and the performance and how their own sexuality and their own pleasure is often 
totally interrupted by just focusing on performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, both whatever gender we identify with, like getting that pressure of performance off of us and really moving into feeling because what I have found, well, in my own journey with sexuality is that I wasn't really embodied. I was having sex with my head, not my body, a hundred percent. And sure, my body was participating somewhat and there'd be some pleasure and, you know, you push that lever, that feels good. But it wasn't, it wasn't a full embodied experience and my body wasn't really leading. So getting into my body and becoming embodied and allowing my body to leave rather than my head, like, is this good? Like, is, is this what he wants? Is this feeling mm-hmm. good? You know, just getting out of that performance, doing it right has been so liberating for me. And I think that a lot of us, that's that's a rite of passage that a lot of us go to is go through is moving from that head-based, performance-based to that more somatic, embodied feeling base. And that yeah. that requires, you know, being willing to be open emotionally too, because I found the more emotionally intimate I am with someone, the more sexual pleasure I experience because there's a degree of safety there that also yep. allows for greater expression. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, it's it's why it's it's a shame that in our field there have either been couples therapists or sex therapists. Right. Um, and it's why I'm so passionate about that intersection. And um, and you're right, they they do, you know, when I'm working with a couple where there are both sexual problems and relationship problems, you know, we're forever moving back and forth between those two realms because certainly the emotional work opens the door for more sexual intimacy, but the arrow goes the other way as well, that, that as couples feel sexually connected, their bodies feel safe together, that, that, um, helps, you know, boost emotional safety. So that, so it goes, you know, the arrow goes in both directions. And, you know, as you're talking about kind of like shifting from head-based sex to more full body sex, I think there's also grief in that too, right? Mm. Like grieving, grieving the lousy sex that we've endured. I think that is something else that really came up as we were working on this book was just, we would have, you know, as we would be in these meetings, we would have like these bouts of like anger and sadness about the information that people don't have early on and sort of the, the lousy sex that people endure, you know, before like this whole, like Maya Angelou would tell us when we know better, we do better. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but that is that that's that that's sad. It's sad that we don't have the tools and the framework and the and the understanding when we need it, you know, need and deserve to have it, For which sure. is right away, right? Coming into our sexuality with that deep sense of oh, I get to be here with my body and my mind and my heart, and that you and I are going to create something special that feels good to both of us, where there's not a lot of pressure. And if things get, you know, wonky, we're going to laugh about it instead of feel ashamed of ourselves mm, about it. Mm, I love that. So I do want to circle back to the sexual boredom piece. And like I said, I'm sure you've answered this in the, you know, the conversation we've had already. But for people that, you know, their relationship is, you know, good, they have a great, you know, friendship and connection, there's affection, but they're just kind of bored in their sex life and they don't really know what to do. What are some steps that they could take? Mm-hmm. 
I first want to um, validate how how normal mm-hmm. and expected sexual boredom is. It doesn't happen because people are bad people. It just it happens because um, because you know life is complicated and messy. And then also um, you know the, this pandemic. Right, we yeah. are now 19 months into a pandemic where for many of us our worlds have gotten very very small. There's a lot of couples that are you know under the same roof far, far, far more than they have been who are doing, you know, who are doing work and family life um, and everything kind of in the same, like within the same four walls. And so for some people, they have actually, the stress of the pandemic um, has really boosted their sex lives because stress, you know, for them, sex is a great stress reliever. And so they have experienced um, kind of an uptick in their sexual desire. But the research is showing the vast majority of people um, have experienced dips mm. in libido around the pandemic. It didn't make sense, right? Like there's um, yeah. uh, Justin... Garcia, who runs the Kinsey Institute, said, you know, like, two antelopes will not have sex in front of a lion. Like, when mm-hmm. when we are worried about our lives, our safety, our, you know, livelihood, our loved ones, when we are grieving the loss of loved ones, as millions and millions of us are, like, when the stress is that real and when things are that life and death, sex tends to fall down the list of priorities. So, right part of sexual boredom may just be, I don't, it's really hard for me to get started, to get my energy going. And so I want people to have a lot of permission to, um, to just invite in whatever feels good. Like, what do I want? Like just starting with the senses, you know, like just going with the five senses and what would feel good to my five senses and how might I invite my partner in so that it doesn't have to be especially, especially for people who are heterosexual, you know, sex equals penis in vagina Mm -hmm. intercourse, you know, that leads to one or more orgasms, you know, Mm -hmm. and it, and maybe we get to have, especially during this time, just a big menu of possibilities of what we might count as sex, you know, like what might count as that kind of an experience. And so then we're less likely to get bored if we've got a menu of things that we could, play with or experience. Um, and it requires, um, you know, if we're under the same roof, we may need to have some rituals that like convert us from, you know, sharing a co-working space to being lovers, you know? Um, so, so there's just more intention, like sexual boredom, when we're experiencing sexual boredom, we're being invited into mindfulness and intentionality. Um, and so some of, those are some of the thoughts that I have about, mm. you know, how mm. to ad- address that. And I want to address it just obviously by normalizing it and validating it first, because boredom gets scarier and bigger the more we start to panic about it. That's so true. It's so true. And I think that we definitely don't have creative solutions when we panic about it. I love the no, no antelope wants to have sex when a lion is watching. It doesn't, it doesn't feel safe. And if we're feeling panicked and we're feeling like, oh, this is a problem and this could be the end of us and you know, everybody else is having sex and we're not, then it's going to for sure create more distance because we're not going to feel safe and we're going to feel like something's wrong with us. And like you said earlier, there are seasons. There's seasons in a relationship. There's seasons in a marriage. There's seasons in our own sexuality. There's things that we go through hormonally or emotionally or chemically that happen. And I don't know if you agree with this, but what I have found is that if couples really focus on keeping the emotional intimacy 
and the affection going, then it's okay if there's period a lulls in the sex life and there's some boredom. It's kind of easier to slip back into it. But when they don't have that, they don't have any kind of sexual intimacy going on and they start to get distant and less affectionate and start to live parallel lives, then I find it's kind of harder to get back on the horse for lack of a better term. That's totally an inappropriate expression, but that's just what came forward. <laughs> so do you find that just kind of keeping that intimacy and affection going is is important to being able to get us through those seasons when the sex yes. may not be as hot? Yes, 100%. I think that's it, – it, it's like it creates – it's like the hill, the the kind of like the, the hump we have to get over is – smaller if we're at least our bodies are in contact and we feel close to each other and we've kind of done a nice job of like managing the emotional space. And when we haven't gotten locked into blaming for boredom, right? I mean, you had said it earlier that shame and blame are both incredibly corrosive elements around um, eroticism, which is so like sensitive, right? The erotic is so sensitive. It's so fickle. It's so like um, just like reactive. So yes, it's a a couple who can sort of like laugh together about, Oh my God, what is wrong with us right now? And who can at least whatever, like have a shower together or, you know, change clothes in front of each other or like lie together, you know, and hold each other. It's going to be easier than to find their way, find their way back. Cause they're at least kind of joined together in the collective, like, Oh, this is really a difficult you know, we're not, we're not performing at our top, mm. you know, top gear mm. here. Cause at least it's a sense of like, it's not, it, it's, we are, it is useless to try to figure out whose fault this is. Yeah. And it's going to be even harder to find our way back if we um, are getting lost in, in shame. Either like, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm blaming myself for a, a period of sexual boredom, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to shut down my partner's bids for any kind of attention or affection because I'm ashamed of myself, right? I feel like a bad partner. I feel like a failure. So how am I going to be receptive to any of his bids for closeness? And then he's going to pick up, you know, my, the fact that I'm not responding to his bids and he's going to mm. stop making bids. And we're going to have that growing mm-hmm. space between us. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you for hours. I'm going to have to come back to Northwestern and take your class. I wonder if they'll (laughs) let me in. (laughs) Thank you so much for all this. And just thank you for your work. You know, I I can tell you're someone that lives your work in your own marriage and life and um, you just very much embodied in it. So I appreciate, I appreciate your body of work very much and everything you shared with us. Will you please tell people how they can connect with you? I know you have a quiz people can take on your website. You have an e-course you have the books, all this will be linked in the show notes, but just give people an overview of where they can learn more. Yeah. I mean, the best place to learn more is just my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, which has links to, as you're saying, all of those, um, the books and the e-courses. Um, I'm active on Instagram and the it's dr.alexandra.solomon. And we just um, launched a brand new podcast called Reimagining Love, which has been um, so such a, such a wonderful world to get to know mm. the world of podcasting, a world that you know very well, Christine. But this has been um, just a, a treat to um, to to begin, you know, my own journey as a podcast host. So I would love for people to check out Reimagining Love. Oh, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to go listen, put it on my podcast list now. That's going to be awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I, I learned so much from you today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for all the work that you do and for helping us increase our relational self-awareness today. It was wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on. 